Welcome to the Humor in Games podcast, an analog and video games podcast about how humor is experienced, designed, and analyzed in games. We are Scott DeYoung, Mark Lajeunesse, and Andre Zanescu, and we'll be your guides in this six-episode series. Throughout each episode, we'll break down different theories and forms of humor. We'll draw on interviews with designers, critics, and academics as they discuss the different aspects of humor, their own lived experiences, and how their work utilizes humor in games. In this episode, we explore how humor changes once live streaming enters the equation. We've listened to designers and academics talk about how humor is structured, what its mechanics are, and how it can impact folks. Now, it's time to think about how audiences are actively reacting to and reshaping humorous content, and how that content might have been intended to be serious, but can be transformed into new kinds of jokes. Let's take a beat and think about how many groups filter into the process of designing games that include humor. From the concept artists, the coders, to the animators, the quality assurance testers, and the community managers, games are always the product of a massive crew of game makers. The question we should be asking then is who are they making for? What is the audience to them? Audiences shift. They change their tastes and they age. They get replaced by new audiences as generations move forward. Still, there are these ingrained and often limiting ideas about core audiences that persist in design frameworks. Brendan thinks back to Graham Kirkpatrick's work on early 90s gamer audiences, and the idea that AAA franchises bank on having an infinite supply of teenagers to design for, no matter what decade we find ourselves in. You can see for like researchers like um, Graham Kirkpatrick probably being the main one who've done this research on like games discourse back in the 80s and 90s and essentially where words like gamer and gameplay came from and like in the late 80s and early 90s especially around nintendo and ben Sega and sony or whatnot is that the gamer audience as like a young male teenage audience was very deliberately cultivated as um this kind of ever-present perpetual audience that will always just buy stuff and i like i like to compare it to like the wiggles that kids band we have in australia which i feel like is popular around the world where like they don't need new songs they can always just sing dorothy the dinosaur and hot potato because there'll always be a new audience of just like four-year-olds who love that song who didn't who like who will age out of it and then there'll be more more four-year-olds and like triple a can can just release another call of duty another assassin's creed another whatever because there will always be another audience of 14 year old boys who are into that and that's like that's a very broad stroke obviously but like that's kind of the general business model of the AAA console space of um, just another FIFA, just another whatever. And like, I play AAA games a lot. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, there's no creativity in AAA, but the focus on franchises and keeping safe is central there because it is primarily targeting, despite all the statistics that show how diverse the player bases are of those games, there is a still a, primary demographic focus on young males um and almost in a way yeah that, that just i think just hasn't kept up with how demographics are changing with tiktok and whatnot like like there is this kind of like baked in culture that started in the early 90s around um grunge and nirvana and like your parents don't understand how cool the playstation is but whatever um and that kind of still exists in a way that just simply hasn't kept up i think in some ways but in other ways, there will always be there will always be fourteen year old dudes who haven't discovered privilege and power yet who 
love jokes around swastikas because it's funny to just defend people and like i totally get that so that's what they're going for um but i think i think the other thing too thinking like say these companies are quite old now a lot of them and absolutely but but the, the workforce in video games still has like such a massive high turnover and if you look at any industry statistics like the gdc state of the industry survey or igda satisfaction surveys the average age of game developers in the industry still doesn't still hovers around 30 like no matter how long the game industry has been around or how long these companies have been around the average developer is still only 30 years old there's like there's a cliff just after 30 where developers have just had enough of this industry and they leave because of underpayment because of crunch because of burnout because of a general kind of fraternal culture in a lot of these studios so the massive like rooms and rooms of just primarily but increasingly so young men making these games I, sorry of men making these games I, I still young men um and still there just is a lack of institutional memory there's a lack of um yeah well just institutional memory and like in AAA at least cross studio kind of discussion which indie has broken down a lot because they don't care about NDAs the same way but yeah AAA is a very slow moving beast um it's only just figured out their subtitles are too small on modern televisions. So, yeah, despite the age of these companies, the age of the actual developers is still usually not that old. Thinking about this evergreen audience that gets targeted by AAA franchises, it might seem like the audience is actually not very present in design processes. As if the formula was figured out in the 90s and everything since has just been repeated over and over. That's definitely not the whole story, though, and especially in newer spaces like indie and live streaming-oriented design, the audience is present and involved, even if they might not know it. So, how do game makers involve or signal that audience? And if they do, how early or late in the design process does that even happen? Kyler Kelly-Tan from Clever Endeavor talks about rolling out Ultimate Chicken Horse in local Montreal game jams. Like, we showed the game very soon after the game jam at the Mont Royal Game Society. And then the audience there just was like laughing and yelling. So we knew we were onto something. And then we did a lot of shows that first year. Like we went to the Montreal Comic-Con and I think it was MIGV, like the Montreal Indie Game Festival. Uh, so we were like going to as many shows as we could and so that was just like every day of those was just play testing and like watching people play and react and laugh at it. Um, once we got to our Kickstarter, we had a demo that we put out. And so that once that was in the wild, a few YouTubers did start playing it. Uh, so then at that point, we would have started watching them and seeing what was funny. And then I don't know how much of it got tweaked like after we put it out if we'd have to tweak it more but i definitely would have been like thinking about if this was in a video would it be funny right. and then being like satisfied when it actually happened like i'm sure i wanted that punching plant volleyball thing to happen so i like made it and then like it happened on a video i was like yes it worked like they 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 fell from my trap of making something funny the game goes through phases of internal playtesting, private demos, events, conventions, 
local meetups, and then moves onto digital platforms like YouTube or Twitch. It's not that the audience compromises the design process, but that they become part of that fabric. Almost like you're telling a joke and waiting to see if the person you're telling it to is going to laugh, and seeing that the joke might even spill over into larger and larger communities over time. Narf, for instance, thinks on how Game Jam games have very specific audiences and playtime in which you get to understand what's happening. I was, we were doing a Game Jam game, which means that player will play it for about 30 seconds. And maybe they will replay it once or twice, but they will get, they'll get the idea and say, but I got the idea and then I can stop playing. Uh, this is usually what happened. Um, so for this particular example, for No, I'm the Captain, like we didn't think too much about like the longevity of the game. <laughs> the game yeah. was meant was made in like two three days, and then played for a few in a few events, and that that's it. <laughs> Those kinds of games have to connect with an audience and make them laugh in a very short span of time and in very specific physical places and at specific events. The time spent working on those games has to parallel the format that the games are going to be consumed in, especially when developers expect to iterate the ideas of one Game Jam prototype into another. The idea that games might even need to be played is still up for debate, though. Uh, Pippin thinks back to a discussion he had with game designer Robert Yang about whether games need to be played, period. It's not something that I've um, I've really ever thought about, except when I got kind of <laughs> vaguely irked when Robert Yang, and he still talks about this actually, Robert Yang, the the queer game designer, gay game designer, really, um, uh, talked about this idea that his games didn't need to be played um, to kind of work, that they all had this core concept, usually at least in some way pretty funny. Uh, he's a pretty funny guy. Um, but that you didn't need to play them. Um, and so it was almost like a total refinement of this idea of all you needed to do was watch like a, an animated GIF or even simulate the idea of the game in your head and that that performance was, was sufficient. And I, that always bugged me. Like I've always felt like you should, you should actually, that the experience of play matters. Um, I can't necessarily articulate why, and he's probably smarter than me, so maybe he's right. Um, but like, yeah, there's, there's that idea that, you know, maybe you do have to play the game and but 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 perhaps that the game can be played for you and you can watch is is an interesting thing i guess yeah. i feel like yeah i guess it could be interesting i don't know like i've never watched anybody play one of my games really with any with any seriousness because it's too nerve-wracking um <laughs> but i could imagine it. you could you could you could play them in a funny way or something like uh it makes sense to me for Pippin, gameplay is an integral part of the experience. If they're only seen, it doesn't diminish the game, but it makes them an altogether different experience. The audience completes the meaning, and oftentimes the joke only works when the player is the one involved in playing. We might have multiple audiences with each one producing new jokes between themselves and the game, and that can be leveraged, or not, as much as game designers want to integrate it into their practice. Sometimes, though, even getting access to that feedback can be a challenge. Eva discusses how games sometimes get rolled out to prospective audiences. We're definitely very conscious of our audience. Um, a lot of times we will, well, pretty much all the time we will soft launch um, a game 
which is kind of the game in its bare form, just to make sure that it's connecting so that it's, it's pretty much like a beta. Right. Um, and then we, we work towards getting um, better numbers with that particular audience from there and making adjustments, seeing what works and so on and so forth. Um, so in that sense, we're very conscious of our audience and we take player feedback and all of that stuff. And uh, on the marketing side as well, um, because a lot of uh, the mobile games industry is very user acquisition based. So what kind of stuff we can use for ads is, is really important as well. Because the, the better the ad connects with the user, the less money we have to pay for every single user that we can get into the game. It's important to also think about the business side of how those audiences are brought together and cultivated. If developers can find them easily and get their games in their hands, that symbiotic design process becomes infinitely easier. The audience can be an invaluable lifeline for developers trying to connect with someone who will appreciate their work. But all these ideas about the importance of targeting an audience brings up new issues. Intended audiences, the ones the games are made for, signal what kind of humor designers can put in. A lot of humor might need in-depth game knowledge to even work. It might need a secondary audience watching the players themselves. Pippin thinks back on T. Takamoto's Kaizo Mario World, a prototype that completely morphed Super Mario World into something else entirely. Uh, it's a, a version of, I think it's Super Mario Brothers, uh, that has been, it's levels designed for Super Mario Brothers that are insanely difficult. Um, that's kind of their primary objective. They're very, very hard. Uh, and the story being that they were designed by a, whatever, a master Super Mario level designer for their friend uh, who was extremely good at the game. Um, and so they can accomplish all kinds of things with their little Mario that the average human uh, barely understands. Um, so the, the sort of the core premise is that it's this, it's this very difficult Mario experience, which you're watching uh, and you're watching a virtuoso navigate it and work out uh, how to, to conquer the various challenges. But I guess it's in the nature of Mario to some, to some extent for any player, but especially in this context, it's all kind of slapstick as well. Like there's lots of, obviously you see this expert player fail constantly because the game is just so insanely difficult. Um, from, you know, hid, hidden invisible blocks where they try and they manage to execute some like wonderful leap off a cliff, bounce off a Goomba's head. But then there's an invisible block placed perfectly, which just catapults them down off the bottom of the screen. And it's, you know, it's just funny. Um, maybe yeah. especially because they're so good, right? It's uh, like seeing a super, super duper athlete trip over a banana skin or something while they're about to score a touchdown or whatever, uh, whatever yeah. kind of metaphor we want there. Um, so definitely, I, I, I definitely get that idea of using games as a way of delivering, delivering comedy, whether or not the game itself is designed for comedy. Um, and it's you know just as clear from something like Kaiser Mario that you can design the game towards comedy for performance specifically. Kaiser Mario became this Batsu game, a kind of punishment game show reinvention of Mario, which made humor central, and not just humor in play, but humor in viewership. The audience was this hyper-specialized and in many ways intimate group of skilled players. It also involved audiences that would view playthroughs in their own right. On another level, though, it completely gated out audiences that would not have fun with this kind of gameplay and been faced with limited accessibility. Whatever the case, audiences are often found at the end of a long chain of game development processes that can take months to take shape. Those development processes have to keep the jokes and those intended audiences in mind. 
Brendan reflects on how streaming has actually shaped distinct audiences and what that means for game development going forward. Like live streaming isn't really about the games at all in most senses. It's about the game providing a platform for the performance of a live streamer that, that you're watching. And so you're there to laugh at a live streamer or you're there to actually use it to just laugh at a live streamer or have a chat with the live streamer while they do something. Um, which like to me as someone in my thirties, I just don't understand at all. Like I just don't want to listen to some obnoxious dude talk. I just want to watch what the game looks like, but it's, it's an, it's an aspect of the game culture that I'm just entirely alienated from, which I just have to have to appreciate. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's massively changed how games are consumed, how games are designed in order to reach that audience, how games are marketed. So, yeah, it's had a huge aspect on every aspect of games and absolutely humor as well. If for no other reason it means a game like Benefot is getting over it or a game like Goose Game um, or maybe even a game like Goat Simulator has has a long tail that it quite, quite possibly would not have had if we didn't have these live streaming slash let's play kind of cultures. There's a question whether the player audience and the live streaming audience are ever one and the same, and whether developers can foresee the rapid evolution of game memes. This is the pitfall of designing for both player and streamer audiences. AAA design in particular can be very structured and bureaucratic. There are so many other constraints to deal with that it becomes very difficult to predict what direction audiences will take the humor that's been developed. This idea that AAA games are designed for an evergreen, cultivated audience can sometimes fail to account for the arrival of new and unexpected memes, and with them, new and unexpected audiences. For designers thinking about streaming, though, there's a slew of new constraints and opportunities, together. Designers have to think about how folks will watch someone playing their game, and whether or not live streaming warrants a lot of their attention during development. It's another consideration to balance in that already complicated ecosystem. Audience retention, for example, is a hot-button topic in design. Kyler's perspective is that sometimes the juice might not be worth the squeeze. Well, just the first thing was that we did put like a live streaming interaction into Chicken Horse. Right. So there's like the, the voting thing where the audience can vote on what blocks they want next. Mm -hmm. um, so like finding room for that audience to interact would it be on my mind making another game? Right. Though it's a it's a tricky like type of feature because I like it sounds really good as like a I don't know, you just say like, oh your audience can influence the game. And a bunch of games have started doing it, but I kind of feel like it's I don't think it helps sell games that much. Yeah. Like I don't think like the the audience probably has some fun with it. The streamer has some fun, but it doesn't feel that impactful. I'm like, I don't know for sure, but I really don't think streamers are playing more of games because they have audience interaction. I don't know. The, I don't think the top games are just all audience interaction games. Live streaming integration is really hard to gauge because once games go out, it becomes impossible to tell whether the game is popular because of that core game experience or because they have audience interaction. So there's this issue to consider with how much you want to invest into the wider audience live streaming culture. Watching those live streams can also be daunting for developers. 
Often those games are from years back, and the humor has shifted, design principles have shifted, and live streaming brings new life to those experiences, for better or worse. Squinky thinks about how they would feel watching someone play their early games today, especially when so much has changed. I love the idea of um, like uh, of people streaming my games. Um, it is always it is not always easy to watch people stream my games, especially if it's like um, games I made like several years ago. Uh, it can kind of like the the consequence of putting so much of myself into my games is that like watching people play games from when I was younger can sometimes have that cringe factor of like, oh, they're taking out my, they're like, they've got my old graduation pictures out and judging me based on that <laughs> rather than who I am now. Um, like, uh, it's like, I'm really proud of the Dominate Complimus games, but um, they were also made before I medically transitioned. So, uh, like, listening to my voice at a higher pitch is always going to be a little bit cringy. Once a game is out the door, audiences can pick it up at any time. And even if the jokes don't change, uh, times do. On the other hand, Osama explains that developers are often on message boards and social media themselves throughout this process. We always have like um, email threads or Slack channels where it's like, hey, these are the memes that are being made uh, of our game. We, the ones that are shared are curated by our community manager team or in the, the odd chance that someone shares something from the dev team that's like, uh, this, maybe you shouldn't share that. It's quickly dealt with and deleted and we, we move on from those. It rarely happens, but you know, once in a while someone doesn't think and doesn't realize that, hey, that joke making fun of pregnant women, maybe don't put that in. Usually like there we're quick to react for situations like that. But no, we I mean we are I, I don't like the term, but we are gamers uh, as well. We play games and we're part of that culture and we do that for other games. Uh, I remember one of the people on, on, on a team I worked on, when memes first started appearing for our game, that was her first game that was revealed ever. So for her, her reaction was, wow, I'm on this side now for the first time ever. I'm usually the one who's creating the fan art and the memes for the games I love, and that was an emotional experience for her. Um, but so you, you, this is something that we do think about. We, we're, we see all the time. We're all on Reddit and Hopefully not, not, not 4chan, but you know, those. <laughs> so we're, we're on the, the like the discords and all the, the different things for our own games as well as usually incognito. Usually we don't know that we're there, we're lurking, but um, uh, we see it and we engage with it uh, as well, telling you know, sometimes in, anonymously telling the fans, no, that's not right, or that's not how the character is intended, uh, because we care. This is, you know, this, this is. These are our babies. Audience memes that cross from the dev space to the game to the live stream and beyond are almost unavoidable. It's really difficult to control the flow of those memes, and they can change how humor gets communicated. Devs have all that much more work to do just to make sure that their humor isn't being misinterpreted and that the content meant to be humorous doesn't end up hurting someone unintentionally. Livestreaming can also use humor to produce an extremely cathartic experience. It can blunt hurtful content or enhance it by putting a new audience spin on it. Kishona reflects on watching a live stream of Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. 
so um so during that stream you know this person you know was like you know talking about like all the the heartache and all the pain and all the struggle that was like present in this in this narrative that they gave us right like so you know this black woman had you know her black child you know stripped from her you know she was she was chained up to this building you know he was sold off to slavery and then you know here you know that kind of like you know um um you know created in him this desire to dismantle slavery right and so what this particular streamer did like like and you know she didn't make it like the content of the stream funny funny it was her delivery and it was like what she then did with this content and that was like it, that's and i think that's what's so powerful with bambi haggins's book of this laughing mad so here we are you know we've got all this anger and all this sadness and all these like mem these collective memories of you know what and you know the the, the connections that we have from like our, our ancestors and our past of like trying to make sense of what it's like to like live during that time. And like here, and she did it with such beauty and such grace. And then she was like, she's like, you know what? Like, let's, let's, let's really tell this story. Let's see what's going on. You know, this, his, he about to go fuck all these people up. He's got, you know, so she brought in like the, the, the cussing and the humor and the funniness and like, made like, and she said, you know, she would be like, I would have, I would have beat my son at like, so she did all these like amazing kinds of things. Right. And so she made the, and I think what, what she did was like lessen that the blow, like that, that, that collective trauma that, you know, black folks always like experience, you know, whenever they're watching this like heavy content. And then she made it as something as like a funny, entertaining experience, you know, and, and then she was, and she was always one to say, said, man, y'all ain't listen, y'all sit your ass down, sit your ass down, you know, so she would do things like that, you know, it's kind of, and I look at that as like the, the comic relief. This kind of comic relief is a part of the new design reality, where games don't just stop once they're in the player's hands. They keep moving, and audiences keep talking about those games, and they talk about their experience watching someone else play those games. All of this can lead to laughter or tears, and live streams become core to how games are received by broader audiences. To wrap up this episode, we think back on this idea of the audience that opens up all new complications when trying to think about humor. Who is that audience? What time period were the devs designing in, and how have times changed since then? How does live streaming fundamentally alter that experience? How does the game design ecosystem of AAA or indie make that even more complicated? It's actually kind of a miracle when games do find a home with communities that pick up that humorous content or meme new jokes into existence. There are no easy answers, but there are a lot of questions that audiences, developers, and critics can and should ask to understand why games come out the way that they even do. Or at least maybe we can finally get why Kaizo Mario is so funny. As always, a special word of thanks to all of our guests, Dr. Brendan Keough, Dr. Kashana Gray, Dietrich Squinkifer, Osama Dorius, Kyler Kelly Tan, Eva Toker, Narf, and Pippin Barr for this episode. Thanks for tuning in, and next time we wrap up and look back on the series.